G'day and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. Coming up soon, I've got Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nambachin-Price to talk about the love and inclusion she didn't receive from the woke mobs who disagreed with her during the gruelling Voice to Parliament debate and who then disgustingly played politics with her request for a royal commission into the evil sexual abuse of children trapped in remote communities. It's going to be a very telling interview. But first, we've grown accustomed to having politicians who couldn't organise a barbecue in a butcher's shop, but you'd think that the least they could do is not drag us unnecessarily into World War III. It's not asking much, really, and to be honest, it shouldn't be that difficult. Right now, there are two priorities for any Australian politician regarding the growing tension in the Middle East. First is to recognise that we are now witnessing a level of depravity and narcissism from Hamas that not even the Nazis could reach. As Henry Ergas pointed out in The Australian last week, quote, at least the Einsatzgruppen, the Nazi brigades who murdered nearly half a million Jews in a matter of months, tried to hide their crimes, showing they had some inkling of breaching morality's fundamental principles. Hamas's killers did the opposite. They videoed their atrocities and posted them to the howls of joy that echoed from Gaza to Lakemba on the internet. Any Australian politician with half a brain would not align him or herself with such barbarians or their apologists. That way, madness lies, as Shakespeare might say. Which brings me to the second priority, which is to not incite a similar type of frenzied hatred here in Australia. But if you expected that level of calm, rational patriotism in Australian politicians, you're about to be sadly disappointed. They have incited hatred, all right, and worse, they did so based on what they knew was a lie. At 7pm on Wednesday in Gaza, which is 3am on the east coast of Australia, an explosion occurred outside the Al Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza. By the time Australians woke up on Thursday morning, their news sources were awash with reports that the hospital had been hit by Isra Israeli military and 500 people had died. Of course, smart people were immediately sceptical. The sole source of this could only be Hamas who are as believable as Bruce Pascoe's claim that his Aboriginal ancestors invented the Massey Ferguson Combine Harvester. And sure enough, at 8.42am Sydney time, or less than six hours after the blast, an Israeli defence spokesman went online to say the blast was caused by a misfired Hamas rocket. Further proof emerged in the ensuing hours, including footage of the rocket being fired from inside Gaza, then falling on the hospital, and a translated recording of two Hamas clowns talking on the phone and admitting they'd done a whoopsie. Then photos emerged that it was the car park, not the hospital, that was hit. By then, any reasonable and honest person would be relieved that the original propaganda had proved to be incorrect and that, thankfully, no atrocity had occurred. 
But some politicians are neither reasonable nor honest. At 10.14am, Australia's Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, published a tweet saying, quote, The protection of civilian lives must come first and respect for international humanitarian law is paramount. We condemn any indiscriminate attacks and targeting of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals. Well, notice the careful wording there. She isn't accusing anyone specifically of breaking international humanitarian laws or targeting hospitals. She can't, because it didn't happen. But she knows that by publishing this as a glib generality, certain demographics will get the message. The Israelis are guilty. Then, a whole four hours later, or more than five hours after Israel had correctly stated that the explosion was Hamas's fault, our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, released a statement curiously using the exact same words as Penny Wong. The scenes from the explosion at a Gaza City hospital are deeply distressing. And it is clear that there has been a devastating loss of life Every innocent life matters, whether it is Israeli or Palestinian. Our thoughts are with those killed, those injured and their loved ones. The protection of civilian lives must come first, as the parliament said in its resolution that we carried on Monday. And respect for international humanitarian law is paramount. We condemn any indiscriminate attacks and targeting of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals. We condemn any indiscriminate attacks, including targeting of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals. Again, no specific details here, just a nudge and a wink to a particularly excitable audience to let them know he shares their outrage. This was a disgusting new low, even by Albanese's standards. As an aside, it's been known for years that Hamas uses the Al-Shifa hospital in northern Gaza as its headquarters. That is a safe location because they know Israelis would not be so heartless as to bomb a hospital. Yet here was the Prime Minister of Australia insinuating exactly that when he knew it was false. He wasn't alone. Greens Adam Bant and Jordan Steele-John made similar accusations. Why do they do this? Why align themselves with the side that has, since being formed in 1987, been dedicated to the total destruction of Israel? Well, in the case of Bant and Steele-John, it's simple. They hate Western industrial civilization and are drawn to any group that is, like Hamas, sworn to destroy it. Wong and Albo, though, well, they're a bit more strategic. They support Palestinian causes because of this. This is the scene outside the Town Hall of Sydney on Saturday. 800 cops were mobilised, streets were closed off, 
Trams into and out of the city stopped running, buses were rerouted and cars trying to get through that part of the town were at a standstill. This was a massive headache for most other people in the city that should never have happened because there'd been a similar protest in nearby Hyde Park just six days earlier. This wasn't just a protest march that arrogantly disregarded other people wanting to enter the city on a Saturday, nor was it just an extremely expensive use of police resources. No, most importantly of all, it was a declaration of power. The organisers of this rally, not politicians or police, decided on what conditions it would be peaceful. And that condition was that no Jews come anywhere near them. Last time that happened, three weeks ago, was when a Jewish man waved an Israeli flag near a group of Palestinian and Hamas supporters. Police quickly arrested the man responsible before he, was, before he could be beaten up by the peaceful protesters. This time, no one took such a risk because, you know, <clears throat> they're the rules. The only silver lining here is that things aren't as bad in Australia as they are overseas. After another school teacher was murdered by a man yelling Allahu Akbar in France, President Emmanuel Macron is threatening to deport foreigners who support terrorism. It's hardly going to solve the problem, but at least it's a start. On the tube on the underground in London, the driver, a driver starts a Palestinian chant over the PA system. And in New York, Palestinian thugs stop traffic on a freeway so they can do donuts and wave the Palestinian flag. Nobody in their right mind wants this to happen in Australia, but it's going to happen anyway. Partly because a big immigration intake keeps our level of national economic activity, also known as GDP, at, imp <coughs> excuse me, at impressively inflated levels. And partly because they, that's our politician, think the nation's demographics and culture need to be modernised. I mean, Australians are racist, right? The only solution to that is to make us more multicultural. Politicians aren't big on irony, but on Saturday, even they would have to concede that our new multicultural utopia is now not safe for Jews and pretty soon won't be safe for the rest of us either. And just in case you were in any doubt that Australia's social cohesion is a low priority for our leaders, Albanese is buggering off again this week to be guest of honour at, at a state dinner at the White House in Washington. What are he and Joe Biden going to talk about? <laughs> 
Well, I can tell you what they won't be talking about, the danger of Muslim ghettos forming in towns and suburbs across the United States and Australia, diluting the culture, hobbling the economy and eroding the society from within so it can be reshaped to resemble the primitive, poor, illiberal theocracies from which they claim to be seeking asylum. Biden and Albanese see the world through the prism of wokeness, which decrees that the cause of any social disharmony is the inherent racism of white people. That's why Albo said Australian Aborigines needed a special voice to Parliament. And it's why days after Hamas terrorists murdered 1,400 Israeli men, women and children, as well as, as, well as kidnapping and raping some of them, Biden released this warning. Jewish families worried about being targeted in school, wearing symbols of their face walking down the street, or going out about their daily lives. And I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many others are outraged and hearty, saying to yourselves, here we go again with Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. Yeah, the problem here is Islamophobia. But here's what Albo says he and Joe Biden will be talking about. Quote, at a time of global uncertainty, working with global partners is vital, whether it's the economy, climate change, energy, resources, or the battle against global inflation. Being part of these conversations means Australia gets to shape the solutions. Well, that's a relief. Australian politicians are dog-whistling to a volatile demographic in Australia, saying that they should bring their frenzied hatred of Jews to Australia. And the Prime Minister is flying all the way to Washington on a private jet to talk about carbon emissions changing the weather in 2030. By 2030, the temperature of the planet is going to be the least of our worries. The evidence of human-induced climate change is either minuscule or non-existent. But the signs that bigger changes to our cultural heritage, freedom and prosperity are marching through the streets of all our cities on a weekly basis for everyone to see. And should the Middle East descend into war between liberal democracy and oppressive theocracy ruled by thugs, you know which system these people will be backing. That's because it's the system they want to impose on us in Australia. And right now, we're letting them do it. Well, there are few issues that expose the sickening hypocrisy of Labor and the Greens as starkly as the issue of child sexual abuse in remote Aboriginal communities. We've heard all year about the benefits that would ensue from an Aboriginal voice to Parliament. The Australian people correctly saw through this ruse. The voice was only ever going to benefit the existing Aboriginal industry, who are already doing quite nicely, thanks very much, from the 30 to $40 billion we spend every year on various Aboriginal programs already. The people who most desperately need a voice, the children trapped in remote towns and communities, would not have got a look in. So, last week, after the voice referendum was rejected, 
Jacinta Nampajinpa Price rose in the Senate and proposed that these poor, lonely, frightened and abused kids get an official voice of their own. Nampajinpa Price. Thank you, um, Mr President. I rise today to speak on the urgent need for Prime Minister Albanese and the Labor government to support the Coalition's call for a Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. Audit spending on Indigenous programs and support practical policy ideas to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians to help close the gap. It is beyond sickening that Labor and the Greens span this into a political issue rather than a compassionate one and turned it down. It's alarming that we still know so little about what these kids are enduring. In 2001, New South Wales Liberal Senator Bill Heffernan visited remote communities in New South Wales and Queensland and reviewed what little literature existed then to compile a report called Child Sexual Abuse in Rural and Remote Australian Indigenous Communities. What he found was a stain on Australia. He found that sexual abuse of children often went on for years. The offenders included government employees working with the Child Protection Department. Let that sink in. Aboriginal land councils, high-profile Aboriginal leaders and unemployed men. They could be Indigenous or non-Indigenous. Many of them were outsiders who visited the communities, ingratiating themselves and then taking the opportunity when it arose. Stories of predators suddenly leaving town once they were exposed were common. Quote from the report, the social isolation, the oppressed conditions and the poor health status of some Indigenous communities help to nurture an environment that attracts the predatory movement. Put yourself in the shoes of the kids living in these towns. They are alone in a place without hope or even joy, with no means of escape, and they are regularly visited by sexual predators taking advantage of their vulnerability. Worse, some of the predators are family members. Heffernan quoted Natunga Phillips, who wrote this in 1996. It's a long quote, but it needs to be repeated in full. Aboriginal family and kinship are the very core of the Aboriginal psyche. It is a way of being. Therefore, when a client's family member has sexually abused or abused in any way the client, then the worldview and Aboriginal community safety for the client is indeed nothing short of shattered. The client often feels a great sense of loss and loss of identity is also a huge struggle for them. They don't know where they belong and families often feud over the assault or abuse. Usually in this feuding, the client is very often forgotten about and this results further in serious psychiatric disorders. Sexual abuse survivors or victims who were subjected to the abuse for a long periods of time over years by a person in a position of trust tended to end up with serious psychiatric disorders, and more than not, many were now in psych wards 
or had at one period, if not more, had been in psych wards? Well, you'd have to be a Labor or Greens voter not to be deeply disturbed by that grim description. Children preyed upon by family members, the families feuding over it, forgetting that there is a victim involved and that victim winding up in a mental hospital. That was written 26 years ago and still we haven't done anything about it. Here is Senator Jacinta Nabajindra-Price in the Senate last week describing how little, thing, how little things have changed since then. Stories of child sexual abuse, stories of children being neglected and abused, stories of Indigenous Australians being ignored because their problems and the solutions they're suggesting didn't fit this government's agenda. Stories like that of my niece, known as Ruby, as reported in the, in the Australian in 2022. In the remote Northern Territory town of Yundamu, Ruby, then just 15, was beaten and raped by her own father. Ruby recounts trying to tell her family in Yundamu of the horrific abuse she was suffering, but says they didn't want to believe her. Incredibly, Ruby found the courage to speak up. <clears throat> and two years later, just 17 years old. She testified against him. A judge in the case said the abuse had been protracted, prolonged, and involved the use of weapons. I know of a case <coughs> now being dealt with where a six-year-old girl was raped and abused by her cousin, a man 12 years older than her. For seven years, Seven years, this young girl was tortured, frightened, in need of help, with no one to turn to because too many community and family members turned a blind eye. Well, as I said, Senator Price also asked the government to establish a Royal Commission to investigate this sickening criminal abuse of children. And Labor and the Greens turned her down. Senator Price joins me now. Jacinta, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll, um, I'll try and be as perky as I possibly can be. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, before we get to the... Uh, well, I mean, it, perky is one thing, but uh, it's a grim topic as well. I mean, I admire... I've I, I got to say, let me just start right from the beginning. I admire your uh, resilience and tenacity against some overwhelming odds and some awfully grim... Uh, content that you have to deal with. So, but firstly, let's kick off um, with the disgusting political games Labor and the Greens are playing with these kids' mm. lives. Can you tell us, those mm. two cases that you described last week in the Senate, how common are cases mm. like that? They are, those, those cases are ridiculously common in remote communities. I mean, those two cases are cases that have been reported and gone through, uh, you know, going through the, um, if not have been through the justice system, going through the justice system. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I know, I, I know of a, a woman who has rescued several of her siblings um, and um, family members, nieces and such, away from uh, community because they've all been subjected to sexual abuse 
um, and the horrors of life in remote communities. And it's just, it is, it's abhorrent to think that um, this Labor government and their supporters and the Greens are continually denying the right for these victims to be heard. In my yeah. intro, in my introduction, I, I quoted uh, Natinga, Natunga Phillips, who wrote in 1996, uh, one of the first people to write about this topic uh, back in 96. And what she described was it, how easy it was for abused kids to, this is, and this is just awful to think about, but these abused kids, innocent children, nobody helps them, they all, they, some of them wound up as patients in mental hospitals. Does that still happen? Uh, yeah, um, that, that can happen. I know of a case of um, a little boy, probably three years old, who would wander around the community sometimes just naked, like just seemingly no responsible adult taking care of that child. And that child turned up um, at a house uh, of a woman I know several times and she was just beside herself. She would make sure she took care of the child as much as she could. and. Um, then she'd go to try and find family and, and, you know, no one was there to put their hand up and say, well, that's our kid. Just like a stray dog, basically, mm. this child. Um, and she did everything that she could to ensure that that child was put into um, care, appropriate care, foster care. Um, I know so many foster parents who have um, foster children who they've they've taken in as babies because of the poor neglect, you know, the fact that even babies have been sexually abused and that they have taken them, you know, through to the age of seven or so and really improved their lives for them, made sure that they've had access to all the services that they need because often these kids come with a whole raft of issues um, like the alcohol, uh, fetal alcohol um, syndrome, uh, or whether they are, um, you know, uh, on the spectrum because of, you know, what they've had to endure in their lives, uh, ADHD, all, all kinds of issues that these kids, um, the services are just simply not available in communities, but they've got them, got them to a point in their lives where they're operating, functioning like, you know, um, well-rounded children. And then the agencies have stepped in to say, we've found someone who is kin for this child, therefore we are now going to remove them from these functional situations where they're being loved and cared uh, and we're going to put them back out into a remote community where there is nothing available for them to support them and in, in environments that they've never known because their whole life they've lived in the suburbs of Alice Springs. So out into, um, you know, Kintore where, or communities like Kintore or, or others where Sometimes there's not even a door on the toilet um, where there's known perpetrators living in the same household, where there's hardly ever, ever any food. And I knew of a circumstance where that happened and the carer was somebody who'd worked in the child protection space quite prominently and even against the advice of, um, of child psychologists, of the authorities, the agency would still remove those kids because the ideology is they're supposed to be connected to culture and country. Well, that child was left in the house with two other children younger than them at the age of eight for three days straight without an adult um, to fend for themselves. Basically, they were neglected. 
And um, again, these children are re-traumatised only for the system to then pay attention and say, oh, well, okay, we'll give them back to their original carers. That to me is just, it's criminal that yeah. that is allowed to occur in well, Australia how is, but, in 2023. But how is it allowed to occur? Have you, has anyone you know or yourself ever confronted the bureaucrats behind these systems and said, do you realise how much damage you're causing? Absolutely. There are foster parents that, are, can, that go to court over these issues, that fight these cases, that have to go through a complete struggle, who are often then, um, you know, blacklisted uh, as, you know, and, and uh, their certificate to be a foster parent is taken from them. Um, there are, it's, a, it's a complete battle, um, an ongoing battle and a system that needs absolute um it needs exposure, it needs to be reviewed, it needs to be reformed, uh, and Indigenous kids, you know, need to stop being left mm. to rot in dysfunction. Well, I mean, I have to ask, how's your niece Ruby going? You mentioned her in the Senate. She testified against her own father who raped her at the age of 15 mm. and, and uh, mm. two years later testified against him. How's she coping? So she's now living in another part of the country, living a relatively private life away from sort of trying to have very little contact with any family, um, you know, which is tough. She's now got her own um, child uh, and, a, and, a, and a loving partner now. But, you know, it was just, just I, I remember sitting through that court case in support of her case and um, in those circumstances, to avoid, you know, children giving, having to give evidence in front of a perpetrator in a courtroom, they provide, provide video evidence to the court. So watching the video in the court of her 13-year-old cousin talking about, um, you know, being present in the room while Ruby was being raped by her father, it's just, it's just, you know, you, you can't... I mean, that is true courage. That is real courage when a child goes through that and, and does that and stands up. And it just, you know, it's, it's just, I just am beside myself that, that a whole a government and a um, political party would deny those children the opportunity for their voices to be heard if they're brave enough to do that. Why wouldn't we want to hear from them as to how we're going to prevent abuse from occurring in the future? Well, during last week, when there was a, a confected attack on a on a um, hospital in Gaza, Anthony Albanese was really quick to say, you know, the sanctity of human life was sacred, and and you know everyone has to cool it and stop bombing civilian uh, targets, and people in hospitals should be safe. Meanwhile, he's rejecting this. I mean, it just, it, it beggars belief. But straight after, and you captured it very well, Jacinta, straight after your request was rejected by Labor in the Senate, and that was a pretty gruelling exchange in the Senate, I've got to say, you returned to your office and recorded a very emotional video. Here's a little take from that. It's seriously, I'm just dumbfounded. I'm absolutely dumbfounded that this is... This is the government that has the lives 
our lives in their hands, that has the lives of our most vulnerable within our communities in their hands. They haven't listened to the Australian people. And when we've called for accountability, they talk big talk, but they certainly do not uh, act on what is best for all Australians, but particularly our most marginalised. Um, you know, this will get back to those that I've told that I'd fight on their behalf for. And I want them to know that I'm not going to give up. This isn't the end. And I know it's difficult for these survivors, but we'll continue to push and we'll continue to fight. So how do you plan to continue to fight, Jacinta? I won't stop. I'll I'll be relentless. I mean, this is something that myself and uh, Senator Karen Little and certainly our leadership are prepared to pursue going forward, um, you know, at whatever cost. If this government doesn't want to bring around, you know, this level of accountability and and be responsible, um, well, then we will take it to the next election if we have to. In the meantime, Uh, when it comes to accountability measures and um, looking into Aboriginal organisations, I'll hold my own inquiry. Um, That's what I'll do um, and and go around the country and listen to um, the needs of our most marginalised if I have to. That's exactly what I'll do. Well, good good luck with that and uh, more power to you for doing it. Do you think Labor's rejection of the Royal Commission is racist? Absolutely. I mean, this is the real racism. This is the racism of low expectations in our country. The notion that only the left, that only Labor can understand the needs of Indigenous Australia. I mean, they've always thought they've owned us. The way that they've treated me, the way that they've treated Warren Mundine, uh, in any argument, as if as if there were something, something's wrong with us because as Indigenous people we don't toe their line. That is what racism actually looks like. Um, not upholding the rights of human rights of Indigenous children. Um, that to me is what racism looks like. Uh, you know, being prepared to stand up for other uh, measures when it comes to child sexual abuse, calling out, you know, churches um, for their roles in child sexual abuse, but then not applying that same principle uh, to Indigenous children. Well, that is racism as far as I'm concerned. Um, and, and, and it is that true blind ignorance uh, and inability to act uh, for the for the needs of our most marginalised that I just, I can't wrap my head around it, to be honest. Yeah, well, they wouldn't put up with these conditions if the kids were white. So I think that's, there's your answer. Now, Jacinta, you also asked for an audit of existing Aboriginal programs, which are estimated to cost taxpayers between 30 and $40 billion a year. Now, I know you asked for three things. There was the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, an audit of the existing programs, and four more practical solutions to the problem. But this audit, I think that's where they're really scared, Jacinta. Do you think that's what they're really afraid of? Because an audit of those programs would would expose a lot of corruption among good friends of Labor. 
Look, absolutely, um, and we've known it throughout election cycles that uh, the favouritism that's given to particular Aboriginal organisations by Labor, uh, the fact that a lot of these organisations are still financially supported and rarely ever produce income um, statements year in, year out, um, you know, or provide their financial books. It's just, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, it's incredible and it's no wonder that there was such a push to certainly enshrine uh, a constitutionally enshrined voice because it, it would be another protection racket for a lot of these organisations and, uh, and and it is our most vulnerable that are missing out while all the, all the while all these organisations that have been responsible for improving their lives have finger pointed at governments. Um, and, I mean, we heard it also within... Um, within the debate in the Senate around the Royal Commission, we heard it from Green Senator Dorinda Cox, who basically claimed that uh, sexual assault um, <coughs> agencies uh, claim that this is not a good idea to conduct such an inquiry, such a Royal Commission. However, they require more funding. Well, sexual assault services need victims to survive, to, to remain uh, open, right? And we're talking about prevention here. So, Prevention means less victims, a less need for funding. You know, it, it's so upside down, it's ridiculous. Well, but it just, it, that's it, what we see. It just baffles me that they're not audited as, as a, automatically. I mean, every, everyone else gets audited. I mean, and these people are spending tens of billions of taxpayers' money. We shouldn't have to ask for them to be audited. It should just happen naturally. But let's just, let's, I, I want to talk about a, a more, on a more broader scale, Jacindra, I'd love to get your opinion about this. Do you think it's about time that we just abandoned the idea of remote communities and brought these Aboriginal families into the cities and towns where they're less vulnerable and opportunities for work and education and prosperity are more, are more plentiful? Look, I think, I think, we need to review whether some communities that are sort of kept on life support and are unsustainable should be kept going um, and whether it is the larger sort of communities that we should bring into line as small um, country towns. Um, and, you know, looking at the whole um, land rights issue in the Northern Territory uh, where traditional owners are land rich but dirt poor uh, and who, if they ever wanted to come up with an idea for, you know, a, a, a tourism venture or something along the lines of that, have to go through the, the multi-million dollar bureaucracy of the Land Council to apply for a lease to lease our own country, um, which never gets up, by the way. Um, whether we should be um, readjusting the Land Rights Act, scrapping it and replacing it with another, or just giving um, Indigenous Australians um, private property rights to, to do with their own land and resources as they so wish to become job creators in their own right. I mean, there's two lots of Australia going on here. There's the Australia we all know and love where it's a, it's a place of opportunity, but then there's socialist Australia uh, in remote communities where everybody is welfare dependent. Um, and so we really need to take a good hard look at what really isn't working uh, and, and do the hard work um, to fix that. That's, that's what I think um, we need to do going forward. And I guess I've always said, you know, um, taking care of people on the basis of need as opposed to race would deter opportunists. I mean, the question about 
indigeneity. How do we prove someone's indigenous? Well, if you just, there's two things you can do, as I said, either treat everybody on the basis of need, not race, or anyone who's born here is simply indigenous, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's you and me, sister. <laughs> now, you did say recently that after the, uh, the voice referendum was over, you were going to have a look at another vulnerable section of our community, uh, and that is transgender kids. What are your plans there? Look, I think, um, you know, we should be protecting our vulnerable and that includes our children. And these days it seems those rights are removed from parents to actually protect their children. Um, I think this has become a blown out ideology that, uh, you know, no one's doubting that um, that there is, there is, of course, children, adults feel as though they're born in the wrong uh, body, but to um, encourage such a dramatic physical change to one's body when it's a psychological issue that we're dealing with, and particularly our most vulnerable being our children, uh, we need to understand, um, especially from those who are detransitioning now, those experiences uh, that everyone was so readily interested in jumping on board with, and there are con serious consequences of that, and we should not be... Um, we should not be encouraging uh, that going forward. We should be treating this uh, as a psychological issue and supporting our vulnerable in that way. Um, you know, fair enough, if an adult wants to go through those processes, then that's an adult that can make that determination for themselves. But a child is an entirely different story. Uh, and and the other side of the argument is the way in which, you know, women, uh, our rights are being trampled on uh, now. You know, I mean, I think that former footy coach who's now uh, a woman has been, you Team know, you see articles stating that, yeah, become the, the sexiest woman in Australia. <laughs> well, you know, come on. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but is there, I, I need to and, ask, is there any sort of um, legislative proposal on the table for, to, to deal with this, to, to put an end to it? So I know that Senator Antic um, has got a bill, uh, private senator's bill going forward um, that deals uh, with, you know, the, the readily sort of available um, issuing of um, puberty blockers and that sort of thing for children. Um, there are, you know, plans. I know, I know that I certainly want to back. These are sorts of these are issues. Are certainly, I know that um, um, Claire Chandler, my, my Senate colleague Claire, Ch Claire Chandler, is very strong on and. Uh, I'd, I'd certainly be hoping to work alongside Claire and, of course, Alex to really look at this issue more broadly going forward. Yeah, good. Well done. It is a, it's a serious issue. And just like those kids in those communities, the kids who fall prey to this, I mean, they're, they're essentially being, a lot of them are falling prey to pedophiles, just like the kids in the community. So, I mean, I can understand that you would transition, oh, sorry, for want of a better word, you would, you would move from one issue to the other without quite seamlessly because they're essentially the same thing. Now, just quickly before you go, mm -hmm. Jacinta, um, I just want to talk mm -hmm. quickly about how you feel about The Voice now. I mean, thankfully it's been rejected. But, I mean, mm -hmm. you were at the centre of the, of the maelstrom what did you learn about Australia from that experience? 
Oh, look, I, I think I, I learned that the Australian people were just wanting to reignite our wonderful Australian spirit. Again, they feel like they have been trampled on through, um, you know, woke culture and cancel culture and that leftist ideology, which has been sort of um, wreaking havoc throughout the Western, Western democracies. And so uh, Australia just wanted to be able to stand up to it and didn't know how to. And I think, the whole, you know, the silver lining to the referendum was that it provided Australians the opportunity to finally do that. Um, and, you know, for, for me, it's just engaging with everyday Australians who all uh, have incredible goodwill for each and every one of us and um, want to work, work more practically going forward. So it's been you know, hugely encouraging uh, in that regard. And I, I just feel like, you know, I'm grateful that the silver lining is such that Australians feel like they can be proud to call themselves Australian again um, going forward. And because guilt politics is utterly stifling, victim mentality is utterly stifling. And therefore, you know, my hope is that we can move forward more practically and, and create a better Australia for tomorrow. Well, you, you, you sort of, uh, you do um, sort of gloss over the fact that you copped a lot of heat during that, uh, during that experience. I've got to ask you, Jacinta, where do you get your, because you showed a lot of courage and strength uh, despite what was happening in the background. And I think, uh, I believe, you know, there was a, you actually attended a few family funerals during it. I mean, your strength is incredibly uh, admirable. Where do you get your spiritual and intellectual courage from, Jacinta? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I've grown up tough. I've grown up in a tough place. Um, you know, there are moments in my teenage years where I, I had to defend myself physically and defend my mates physically. Um, and I've always known that there's somebody worse off than I am. And um, a lot is my, my my family are amongst the most you know marginalized in this country and I just want to improve their lives and I know I've seen the last three decades where an industry has grown off the backs of their misery and I'm I'm here to say enough's enough and um uh, I'm absolutely, you know, determined. I'm a, I'm a bit of a dog with a bone, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and and once I, you know, my, my lovely husband Colin always says to me, when I want to do something, I'll do it and there's nothing that can stop me from doing it. And I think, um, you know, the attacks, as far as the attacks um, on me, I'm concerned about those is they're actually a bit like... Um, they fuel my, <laughs> they fuel my um, my fire. Uh, I, I take them and I use them to propel me in what it is I'm trying to um, achieve. That's what that's what my attackers don't get. Um, that that it, it's actually empowering me to push further and 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 they're not proving me wrong in any of this. Uh, in fact, they when they attack me. You know, they're displaying for the Australian people exactly what it is that we're up against and we want to um, continue to ensure it does not succeed. Well, I hope <laughs> they continue to drive you and I hope eventually, Jacinta, you can bring them over to your side so we can go together, go forward together as one Australia. Jacinta, thanks so <laughs> much for talking to me on The Fred Paul Show. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> That's Jacinta Nambajinpa-Price uh, uh, from Queensland.
Introducing the co-host of Parting Shots, the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously, it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him, so in the end, I just said yes. Yeah, Nick told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago, and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just the knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it, just get below the surface of each issue. Oh, yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf, you know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's, you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? Search Spotify for Parting Shots, the podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. G'day, Damien Curry here. Are you having trouble keeping up with the news and the flood of information coming at us all? Want to understand what's going on clearly and simply without any hidden agenda? Well, great news. The Other Side Australia is back every Friday, now right here on ADH-TV. It's your weekly short-circuit summary of the best news commentary from Australia and abroad. And join me for The Other Side interviews on Tuesday nights and on demand right here on ADH-TV. Vision and story. What destiny might we envision and pursue? Has the potential to be the most uh, wonderful vehicle. Every civilization down through the ages has been driven by powerful ideas. You look out into the world at the moment, there are a series of narratives out there. These Welcome aboard the Ark. Are you looking for the best books to buy, but can't be bothered searching for them in increasingly woke bookshops? Visit the ADH website, click on the store, and check out the latest and some collectible old books by such authors as Brendan O'Neill, Ian Plymer, Jared Henderson, Ian Hancock, and myself, David Flint. These are some of the sharpest writers applying common sense to the great debates of our time, from the gender wars, the attack on religion, and the new racism of the Aboriginal lobby. All the information you need to get through these crazy times at store.adh.tv.
Welcome back. In case you missed it, here is Prime Minister Anthony Albanese bragging how he can solve the housing crisis. You've been very forthcoming about the fact that you grew up in government housing. What is being done for families like this? The truth is that we've had to step up because for 10 years uh, there was a reduction in mm. social housing funding from the Commonwealth. It's something mm. I put in my second budget reply. Uh, so a range of measures. There's not an easy fix. It's all aimed at supply. So the social housing accelerator, the increased uh, spending, we've got $1.7 billion this year across the country for our National Housing and Homelessness Agreement. Uh, we have $2 billion additional for community housing. We have incentives as well for the private sector to build private rentals as well. Well, leave aside whether or not a government run by these clowns could build so much as an outdoor dunny without their friends in the super funds and unions forcing it over budget and over time and prone to fall over anyway. What Albanese is overlooking here is that the building industry itself is in serious crisis. Journalist Leif van Onselen reported in Macro Business last Tuesday that corporate bankruptcies, indicated here by the blue line, are at their highest since 2015, and the standout sector is the construction industry, the orange line. Van, Ans van Onselen says this is a blow to the Albanese government's plan to build 1.2 million homes over five years. And he's right. But it's also a prime example of politicians and bureaucrats looking at a problem and coming up with exactly the wrong solution. Albo might sound like a hero on radio reeling off the billions of dollars of our money he's throwing at the issue, but if there are not enough builders around to do the job, well, it's not just not going to get done. Meanwhile, we continue to allow in eye-watering levels of immigration, often of people who are coming looking for a handout, not to contribute to the building of a bigger and better Australia. The construction sector has just survived, or, in, or not survived in many cases, a period of high inflation in material costs. A lot of uh, building jobs are done on a flat quote, which means if the material costs go up, the profit margin disappears. The builders who survived that are now facing rapidly rising insurance costs. This is where it all gets particularly complex and, for want of a better, more strident word, counterproductive. One medium-sized builder contacted me to describe what he has to go through to get compulsory insurance to cover a building site. And after half an hour on the phone with him, I hung up shaking my head, wondering why he bothered. What he'd been through was common. And this is what happened. A tradie on one of his sites fell down some stairs in 2019. Nobody saw it happen, and he claimed that this caused him some sort of psychological injury and sued the builder for compensation. What the builder didn't know was that this tradie had pulled this stunt once before and knew the system well. He's claiming a million bucks. Having to deal with this when all you want to do is build houses would be bad enough, but you're not allowed to turn a shovel on a building site 
unless it has proper public liability insurance. And if you've got a compo claim hanging over your head, insurance companies immediately deem you a risk and don't want to know you. This particular builder's insurance company bailed on him, so he went looking for another firm. Previously, he'd paid $23,000 a year for all his liability insurance. The first quote he got after this compo claim had been lodged was, get this, $500,000. The second quote was barely better, $450,000. And $450,000. At this point, this particular builder was thinking he's, he's gonna have to close his business, sack his staff and find a new way to feed his young family. Finally, a third quote came through at $230,000, a tenfold increase on his normal premium, but low enough for him to only just keep the company open. It's taken him a lot of resilience to get through this ridiculous red tape and the bastardry of the insurance companies, most of which are based in London and couldn't give a toss about the Australian construction industry. He told me, quote, small builders are so intertwined with their companies, it is their life. Not only are they battling for their clients, they are battling for their families. Every single cent of my life is in this company. Most people would have quit by now. I'm not the type of person to say I'm a victim or sook about it, but if I got out, it would hurt other people and that would be bad for the building industry. Well, what an absolute legend for fighting this and keeping his company open. So there you go, Albo. If you want to get the construction industry moving again, don't throw taxpayers' money at it, mate. Remove the red and green tape tying builders up in knots and sit back and just watch ordinary Australians flourish. Well, that's all from me tonight. If you want to catch all the latest common sense commentary from people like Jason Morrison, Alan Jones, Nick Cater, Damien Curry, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Alexandra Marshall, Spectator TV and more, go to adh.tv or download our app and you'll never miss a show. I will be reporting from London next week, as will several of my ADH colleagues from a very special conference organised by Professor Jordan Peterson. It's going to feature some of the world's best conservative commentators and ADH will have exclusive access to a lot of it, so don't miss it. Tune in at 7pm on Monday to find out. I'll see you then. Good night.